You're listening to an exclusive podcast with the UCLA Radio News Team. Uh, my name is Sri Ram. My name is Jared. And Tim Ryan is joining us today for an interview. He is a 2020 presidential candidate and representative from Ohio. Welcome to UCLA Radio, Tim Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. For the first question, I would like to ask, why should UCLA students vote for you? Well, I understand you know, what's happening in the country. I mean, one of the, one of the key connections Democrats uh, have lost over the past really 20 or 30 years is the connection to the working class. Uh, I don't say that as white working class, white, black, brown, gay, straight. You know, we've got to be the party that is for the workers. And I've spent 45 years of my life in the last almost 20 years in politics in the foxhole with the workers. You know, we've, I've been at the epicenter. My district is in northeast Ohio, um, halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, really the epicenter of deindustrialization in the United States. And I've watched this real train wreck uh, of an economy happen here in the, in the heartland. And, and so I understand what families are going through. I understand what people are going through. I understand their challenges, their needs, their sufferings, the opiate epidemic, the job loss, the lack of health care. And I think the next person who walks into the White House better deeply understand what, what the American people are going through, vast majority of them anyway. And I believe I do. And, and I think I understand the challenges that are out there. So I'd like an opportunity to, to get into the White House and try to do something about it. Yeah, you talked about how you were an Ohio representative for 17 years. You've seen the rise of industrialization and then the fall of manufacturing. Can you share with us a story or moment about the Ohio working class that you think the students at UCLA need to hear? Well, I can, I can, uh, you know, I can give you a story from 40 years ago. My father-in-law worked at Youngstown Sheet and Two, which was one of the largest steel manufacturers, lost his job in the late 70s. Uh, and I think the, the thing that connects the reason that that story is important for someone in UCLA in 2019 is because we lost the steel industry in the late 70s because the technology in the steel mills was pre-World War One. So the steel industry basically put its head in the ground. There was new technology out there. There was competition, and they ignored it, and we got wiped out, and here we are 40 years later, it was my father-in-law, and then it was my cousin who unbolted machines from the factory floors and put them in a box and shipped them to China. And then just a couple you know, months ago, we lost the GM factory here. Uh, and so we've seen the loss. But the point I want to make and the reason those stories are important is because I think we're at the same kind of inflection point now where we are reading all of these stories, and you're probably studying about uh, automation artificial intelligence, additive manufacturing, uh, machine learning, all of these things. And there's a lot of people in the world who want to put their head in the ground, I think Donald Trump included. And what I'm saying from my experience in the 70s in the Youngstown around the steel industry is we can't do that. We have got to grab these technologies. We've got to embrace them. We've got to lead the world in them. We've got to infuse them into all aspects of our industries. We've got to crank up productivity, and we've got to cut workers in on the deal all over the United States and, and, dr and drive investment into these communities that have been left behind, the old coal communities, old steel, old auto, old rubber. These are the communities that have been left behind, and I want to see the investments in electric vehicles, solar, wind, additive, all of these things that are growing 25 30% a year 
I want to see those investments go in the communities of color, go into the old industries. And so we can do this. We can transform the economy, but we got to play heads up, uh, head, heads up uh, baseball here and, and pay attention to what's going on and then have the courage to make these tough decisions. I love that you were able to fit some sports talk into your answer. <laughs> well, I always try to. <laughs> and yeah, I love that you talk about electric vehicles. But in terms of the progression of AI and automation, how do you think we could deal with the displacement of American jobs as technology progresses? Well, you got to grab the technology. I mean, you never know what the spinoff is going to be. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said, yeah, we're going to grab artificial intelligence and here are going to be the 10 new industries that are going to pop up around around AI. We have no freaking clue. Uh, But the reality is you can either be in a position where you're leading the world in those technologies, additive AI and all the rest, or you can let China do it and then you are subservient to them. Not only are you behind China, you're not getting any of the benefits of of the next generation of spinoff jobs that are going to come from the new technology. So I say grab them dominate them. You know, let's overcome our fears. I'm scared too. You know, I got three kids, 16, 15, and and Brady will be five in a couple weeks. I'm scared to death, but you don't let fear stop you. You you keep going and, and so you dominate these industries. And I think this is where we need a new and updated government. You know, we've got an, we've got an old government that's not visionary. It's not nimble. It's not, it's not, putting the kind of resources behind dominating these technologies. It's not partnering with industry. We're so divided right now that it's like you're either on one team that says the government has all the answers or you're on the other team that says private sector has all the answers and just cut taxes for the rich and everything will work out. Well, that hasn't worked for 30 or 40 years. And government needs updated. And so what I'd like to do is build a new New Deal coalition. You know, Roosevelt, when we were going through the Depression and he was administering the New Deal, those were innovative programs around agriculture, around industry, around jobs, around art and music, and, and all of these things. They were all innovative. We've got to do that again. We can't do the old school programs. We've got to do what would Roosevelt do if he was here today, and let's make the government start working again for everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, my co-host has one question about climate change. Yes. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh Mr. Ryan, so uh, I had a question about the issue about climate change. And so, you know, how would you describe, you know, the polarizing topic of global warming and climate change, you know, to Americans who are not aware of the dangers that this issue presents? And how would you, you know, allow them to understand the necessity of investing in renewable and clean sources of energy while at the same time, you know, explaining that that there's there's still, a lot, you know, huge like market potential and a lot of unfilled jobs that are going to, you know, uh, occur in these industries in the future if we you know, give it the time and resources that it requires. Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is a jobs program, period, end of story. What, what does it mean to move to, to address climate? It means jobs. It means lots of manufacturing jobs. We've got one to two million electric vehicles in the world today. We're going to have about 30 million in the next 10 years. Who's going to make those cars? I want the American worker to make those cars? Who's going to make the batteries? The American worker should make the batteries. Who's going to make the charging stations, which is going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry around the world, putting in electric charging stations? The American worker should be building those things and exporting them to the world. Who's going to build solar? Who's going to build the wind turbines? The American worker should be doing that. And when you're talking to workers who have just lost their jobs at General Motors or Ford, 
that seems like a pretty good idea. And when I'm president of the United States, I'm going to sit down and have an industrial policy saying, okay, right now China dominates 40 to 50 percent of the electric vehicle market. I want the United States to dominate that market. What do we have to do? What's the Department of Energy have to do? What's the Department of Transportation have to do? What's the National Science Foundation have to do? Department of Defense, let's sit down with venture capital. Let's sit down with the private industry, the big three. What do we have to do? And then drive those investments into the communities that have lost the last 40 years, communities of color, communities of the old economy. How do we strengthen unions so that we make sure that the workers are negotiating and getting cut in on the deal? Then we sit down and we have another meeting about solar. And we say, okay, China controls 60% of the solar market. How do we dominate that market? And then how do we drive the growth into these communities to lift everybody up? And then we do it for wind. On and on and on. But you're going to need a president of the United States who's going to drive these things. Period. End of story. This is about executive leadership. I've been trying to do this for a long time in Congress. I've brought back hundreds of millions of dollars to my congressional district around additive manufacturing and green energy and all kinds of things. And we're doing okay. We're moving the needle. But these are structural issues. This takes executive leadership, the vitality of the presidency to make this happen. And so talk about climate in the context of jobs and good-paying jobs, and you'll have working-class people, as I said, white, black, brown, gay, straight, that are going to want to do those jobs. And, and now all of a sudden it's about a job. It's not about climate. And believe me, if they're working on electric vehicles, they're going to care a lot more about climate than they do if they're working to build you know, big gas-guzzling trucks. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, I completely agree. I love that you shape it in terms of economy and jobs. I feel that's lost in a lot of the climate talk right now in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, it, makes, it just makes sense. We, we had this debate back in 2009 when we voted for the energy bill. It never went anywhere in the Senate. They didn't even take it up for a vote. But I was coming back to my district, and I caught a lot of hell for voting for it because we didn't really sell it properly. And I kept saying, guys, there's 800 component parts in a windmill, gear, gear shifts, bolts steel, you know, yeah. uh, hydraulics, like, this is the shit we make, guys. Like, come on, what are we talking about here? This is the future for us. Why would we want to do oil when we could do this and make it and then get good paying jobs out of the deal? Yeah. Before we conclude our segment, I would like to talk about your book really quick, A Mindful Nation. You have pushed for social and emotional learning in school to improve attention and behavior. Before we leave today, can you lead us and our listeners in a quick, just if you have any mindfulness advice to give to us, breathing exercises. I really loved your talk about mindfulness in school. Anything for us at UCLA Radio? So your, your brain uh, can be in fight or flight mode, which means the oldest part of your brain, the amygdala, basically hijacks the rest of your brain and you're in, you're in survival mode. When you're in survival mode, you can't access your prefrontal cortex uh, and so if you can't access your prefrontal cortex, you can't access your, you can't access your executive functions, which is your working memory, your decision-making, your ability to pay attention. So what mindfulness does in the practice basically is you try to ground yourself in the present moment, which really is the only moment there is. Your brain will want to go to the future. Your brain will want to go to the past. You anchor yourself in your body and your breath. And so you just say, I'm breathing in. I know that I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. I'm aware that I'm breathing out. I'm breathing in. I know that I'm breathing in. And then notice your belly go out. Does your chest go up? You know, feel your butt in the seat, your feet on the floor. And you just practice doing that. But there's a million different websites and 
I know UCLA has a strong mindfulness uh, research program happening there. Your listeners could, could tap into that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done. And I totally encourage anybody with a near shot of this, start some kind of, of mindfulness or meditation practice. It's, it makes all the difference and just give it a try for a week or so. And, and you'll notice a big difference in your life. And when I come out, I'll, I'll sit and meditate with you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you have your website, timryanforamerica.com, if our listeners want to learn any more. Do you have any last words for everybody at UCLA? Yeah, go to timryanforamerica.com. Thank you. You know, Drop me five bucks. I'm trying to get on the debate stage. Um, I'm doing well in polling, but I need a bunch of low-dollar donors. So get on, and you can do Apple Pay and give me a buck or go to the website and Give me a dollar and help me get on. I'm trying to I'm trying to start a worker worker revolution here, and I can't think of anybody better than than some rabble rousers out at UCLA. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Mr. Ryan. It was a pleasure having you on our show. Thanks. Thanks for having me.